Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I'm Todd James, and I'm joined with our editor, Matt Hall. And today we continue our election podcast coverage series, focusing on another city council candidate. Today we have Matt Hall interviewing Mario Fonda Bernardi. Uh, Mario currently serves as a member of the Planning Commission, and he's a longtime resident of Santa Monica. Matt, what else can you tell us about Mario? You know, so you, you mentioned he's a he's a planning commissioner, so he certainly has thoughts around architecture. Um, he certainly is somebody who has been around a long time, and you know, he he talks a lot about things from kind of an environmentalist perspective. He has thoughts about sustainability and reuse. Um, I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody that he falls squarely on the slow growth, no growth side of things. Um, while he's on the planning commission, that does also limit his ability to talk about specific projects that the commission may or may not be hearing about. It just you know limits, uh, similar to the incumbents, there's some limits on what he can and can't say about those things, but his broad philosophy is certainly not going to be a surprise to anybody. So yeah, he's an interesting guy, definitely part of the anti-incumbency slate alongside the other three candidates. And, and w- like I say, one of the things I think people will or maybe you might want to hear more about or pay attention to is this sort of environmentalist philosophy that he kind of outlines throughout the, the interview. Okay, great. Well, let's get into it. Matt Hall interviewing Mario Fonda Bernardi. All right, folks, thank you for being here today. We're here with Mario Fonda Bernardi, who is uh, currently a planning commissioner, but is actually running for city council at the moment. So, Mario, thank you very much for being here today. We appreciate your time. Uh, I want you to take a couple minutes and just tell folks who you are and why you're running. Okay, I'm a 45-year resident of Santa Monica. I've been practicing architecture in Santa Monica. I run a small business. I know what it takes to keep a business going. I'm also a longtime advocate for public schools. Both of my kids went all the way through Santa Monica schools. I've been on the Santa Monica Conservancy for over 10 years. I was instrumental in saving the shotgun house. I've also worked for other civic projects, such as the Belmar Historic Park, which uh, was recently opened, unfortunately not used because of COVID. Uh, But that was a 20-year community effort, and I was instrumental in that. I'm also on the Conservancy as I mentioned, and also coached ASO for 17 years. So I've got very deep roots in the city. I grew up, I actually went to school at University High School, so I didn't have the benefits of going to SAMO, uh, but I'm very well connected to this community. I've been here for a long time. So that's the background. Why am I running is because I think our city really needs a major, and I'm talking major reset, that we have ended up in this, what I call a Blade Runner world, where the streets are awash with crime, and homelessness, and those are just symptoms of a larger problem we have, which is the city is not nimble enough to respond to these problems, and it hasn't. And the incumbents have had years to work on these, and we are, for example, in terms of our finances, we're exactly where we were seven years ago. We've had we have the same city budget, we have the same pension overhang, no progress has been made, and the situation is getting worse. And you could use that about anything. You could say oh, crime is up. Well, people are saying, well, crime is down in the last year, but if you go back six years, seven years, you'll see that crime had a huge increase. Homelessness, everybody's walking down the street and they have to step over feces. That's a common experience for Santa Monica's. That situation has not improved. So our city is not really addressed 
the real issues that we're facing and has not addressed them in an effective way. So that's what I would like to bring to is a fresh view of things and really push our city to a more sustainable direction. And the reason I say sustainable is that we are so dependent on a very large ecosystem stretching forever. And we're also the victims of that. You know, we did not create the homeless crisis. We are actually the recipient of the homeless crisis. We are very attractive to homeless people. You would, if you were homeless, you'd want to come here too. You can stay at the beach. It's very nice, nice climate. People are relatively benign, relatively meaning compared to other cities. So there's a lot of ways that although we didn't create the problems, we've inherited the problems. So we still have to solve them. Uh, last thing I would like to add is the the crimes that we're seeing is, you know, we're, we're a wealthy city. We're, we're a desirable target. We are a soft target, unfortunately. And so we are an attractive, an attractive target. And so we're always under attack. We're always under siege, if you will, either in small crimes or middle crimes or even big crimes. Uh, we saw that, obviously, on May 31st. So these are issues that I think the city council needs to address and it needs to establish some confidence that they're really working on these things instead of saying, well, uh, there's no crime in Santa Monica, as all four of the incumbents said at the uh, Democratic Club interview. They just basically denied the problem. They say it doesn't exist. Why do they deny the problem? They can speak to that. But essentially what they're really saying is they don't want to let the message get out of what's actually happening in the city because it might hurt the tourist trade. And our city has gotten so dependent, I would say addicted, to the tourist trade. And we need to pull back from that and go away from something that is very unstable. The tourist trade is very unstable. It's fickle. We don't know what's going to happen with it, given exchange rates, given you know what's happening with China. All these things basically make us vulnerable. And our dependency on tourism will not bail us out because we don't know if the tourists are come back. I hope they do. I hope we have a good reputation. But we shouldn't buy that reputation by lying to our residents that there is no problem and therefore not acting on the problem, let's say, of crime and others. So I'm looking for a way to turn our city in a better direction, away from where it's been, and really start digging into solving the real problems that are underlying our city situation. And I'll tell you, those problems, unfortunately, don't seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting worse. In fact, when we see, when we go through the eviction cycle of COVID uh, and what's going to spill out of that, we've got a, a homeless factory running at full speed right now. Again, we didn't create that factory, but those people are going to show up on our doorstep. So I'm looking at things that we can do to ameliorate the situation. I don't think the city council is up to it. They've had years working on it. They haven't done anything. Or let's put it this way. They didn't do enough to make a difference. Right. Well, well, let's let's start breaking some of those things down, right? Yeah. So you went through crime, homelessness, finances. Um, you mentioned the larger ecosystem. And in that case, you weren't talking about the environment. You were talking about uh, the connections to Los Angeles and the broader uh, connections between cities and problems, right? I want to yes. make sure I – yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing you talked about there was tourism. So I heard those things in that order. <laughs> so sure. let's start with crime. Right? Okay. So the police chief, uh, pre-COVID, the number was, I believe, a 13% reduction in part one crimes. Yes. Uh, recently, I heard that that had um, improved or changed to 16% as of a month ago or so. You know, right. you factor in the COVID closures, fewer people, part one crimes down 16, 16%. Yeah. Um, and well, yes, that's after an increase, but I'm just saying, like, that's the number as of today. Right. So 
What specifically are you proposing to further reduce either part one crimes or the other kind of crimes? And we should say for listeners that there's um, part one crimes are the most serious. Those are robberies, um, murders, physical assaults, like the, the big, big stuff. Things like shoplifting or um, uh, misdemeanor hit and run where no one's injured. Those are not part one crimes and aren't included in those statistics. So right. they're kind of two different things. So specifically, pick a category. Tell me what you would do to reduce it. Well, so here's the way I'm looking at it. We, we have a reputation as being soft on crime. It's an unfortunate reputation. And it starts, obviously, with all the little things. If someone is running through your store and grabbing goods and running out the door, that person will never be prosecuted. That's just a standing, that's a basically background noise for crime, right? Right, but Santa Monica can't do anything about the prosecution. Well, yeah. It's the district attorney. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that don't we have some traction with the entire system? You know, we, we have to fund our police. We have to, you know, essentially deploy them for the greatest impact. Uh, and we have some control over this. We're not just helpless victims. So I'm looking at what can we do to improve our deployment. And essentially what it's going to come down to is doing more with less. What things have the greatest leverage? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that we are very exposed in some areas. For instance, on the beach, we have very little police presence on the pier, for instance. Um, we don't have enough police presence. One incident there could be what happened to Westwood like 40 years ago. They had some huge event, and then Westwood tanked as a tourist destination, even though they had a very large captive audience. So we have to be a little more proactive than we've been. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, when I said we're at a stage of war, what we have is we have a standing army, and I'll say something about our standing army. As a whole, I'm always impressed with the professionalism of our police people, uh, all different levels. Uh, very impressed with that. But they're functioning against, one, a huge mountain of problems, and two, a failure of leadership at the very top. So where I was going with this is that we have a lot of people who are trying their darndest, doing their best they can, but they just don't have... The equipment. So, for example, I'll give you an example. We had supposedly, and again, we have to verify this, there was a, uh, a little piece of information that there was going to be looting in Santa Monica. I believe it was Tuesday before last. And, you know, the city did the right thing. It did a full-on deployment, tactical alert, and um, eventually intercepted the assault. Okay, that's good. That's wonderful. They learned their lessons from May 31st. The question is that we got lucky if that was the true drama that someone picked up the message. So I'm asking, well, who's listening for those messages? Who's tracking that? And how many tactical alerts do we have in our city budget? Because essentially the guerrillas are testing us. They're always probing. They're always probing the defenses. And so we need to be smarter than them in either going out to them and listening to their communications, which eventually gets you into certain limitations on civil rights. Uh, but the other side of it is, can we take the siege, the relentless siege? How many, how many tactical alerts do we have in our budget? How much do they cost? How ready are we for that? And I know it's contingency planning. We hope it never happens. We hope it never happens again. Unfortunately, it probably will. So that's, that's on one level of police enforcement. On the other level is we simply need people on the streets, more people on the streets. And eventually, when they can't do it, we're going to really have to beef up the neighborhood watches and make people more, uh, let's say, neighborhood 
uh, knowledgeable, neighborhood friendly, uh, neighborhood, let's say, be the eyes on the street. And then when the calls come in that something's funny is going on, they don't get blown off. The people actually respond, even though you and I know that half of those alarms are going to be false alarms, but we still have to feel, people who are calling in still have to feel that there's somebody home. They did not feel that on May 31st, by the way. Everyone called in, but no one was home. So no one wants to go through that again. Right. And, and you keep saying May 31st, and I, I'm not disputing that that was a huge event, but that was one event, right? And I, when you're asking about crime, the overall crime rate is not going to be impacted by this one day, right? So if we're talking about redeployment, well, if well, your idea I'll, for addressing like the, yeah, the but, quality of life crimes is redeployment, but then let's, let's you're taking at, officers from one place and putting them somewhere right, else. Right. So where you where do you think they are deployed inappropriately, and where do you think they should be deployed? Well, that would be something I would talk to the police because I actually don't have a map of where they are deployed and where they could be deployed. That would be a very interesting conversation to have with them. But I do feel that when you have 20 detectives, does our city need 20 detectives? Could some of those people be out in the field? Question mark. You know, maybe if they were out in the field, there might be less crime for the detectives to work on. I don't know the police science of that, but there's a feeling that maybe we should be more out in the field. The other thing I can tell you, even though you downplay the May 31st argument. You know, there were... F- uh, no, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it. I know, but... But hear, I think there's a very specific difference between up. addressing... No, 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 but I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, there's I know, a very I, specific difference between talking about systemic changes that are going to impact everyday operations and activities and how do we not get looted and massively destroyed right. in this giant right. incident, right? Those are both police, so, but so, very different responses. Yeah, but here, here's where I'm going with this, and if you'll bear me out. You know, one of the things we did see in that big event was that there were nominally 400 people arrested. I don't think very many of those people were charged. Some people are saying none was charged. I'm not sure about that. But given that fact, given that a lot of people were arrested and they were all let off, large number were let off. That doesn't help our reputation. That just says, come on back. We can't manage it. We're going to be back. So that's I got to put that out there. The other thing is that when we look at what where the police power is being used, a lot of times it's being used to deal with what would be normally a mental health crisis or an addiction crisis of homeless people. And they, those suck up resources. So everything's connected. Can we use park rangers? Can we use hire them back? Can we use more social, basically, supports for the homeless people and deploy less police in that particular activity? I'm not saying the social workers have to go out unprotected, but can they go out with just one officer? So you're talking about things like the homeless multidisciplinary street team or C3 teams or these other, um, for listeners who don't know, there are teams that that go out. We have several of them in different configurations that include a police officer, social worker, a medical professional, and they're specifically targeting um, homeless individuals who are frequent or constant users of public safety services. Yes, and that includes, obviously, the fire department is is also involved in that very, very deep hole which they're trying to fill. And again, I say we did not create this problem, but in going on to homelessness as being one of the vectors that intersects with police, you know, the only people right now who have enough land to solve this problem at a scale measurable to the problem would be something like the VA. They have the land enough to put some housing there, whether it's temporary, whether it's permanent, whether it's fast, whether it's uh, ongoing. 
for vets who are homeless and often suffer from other addiction, PTSD, etc. So, you, you know, Councilmember Shriver tried to do that for years, and all he got was 54, you know, beds out there. Well, we need a lot more. This is not a form of nimbyism. This is trying to bring a tool big enough to make a dent in the problem. And that's what I'm saying. We're the regional recipients of this, but we need a regional solution, too. And, yep. and I'm not sure we're, we're fighting on that scale. You know, and, in other words, again, for folks who don't realize, uh, we got to sort of break everything down for folks, right? But yeah. there is a large uh, veterans complex just outside Santa Monica. And there's been a long and ongoing dispute, fight, push to force them to put some more housing on that site. And, you know, right now, there's just a line of tents, right? They've given sure. tents to people. They're not really doing much for them. But that's that's where you're talking about as a regional cooperative effort, yeah. pushing for something akin to the bridge housing, but perhaps not quite the same, out there that would allow people to be taken somewhere or give a people a place to go so that they're not on the street. Exactly. Exactly. Again, it's not nimbyism. It's not like we're saying, you know, well, just go off and die somewhere else. No, we're saying, here's a home for you. Remember, you know, the VA used to be called the old soldier's home. That's what's the original roots. And somehow along the way, it lost its way in that mission. And now it's basically, basically a medical facility. But there was a lot of other needs out there. And even if they do provide housing for vets, or vets that are homeless in this case, they still need social services. You can't just put someone in a house and say, good luck. You know, you have to provide the other pieces that they're going to need to at least have a decent life. So, again, our problem, yes, but our solution cannot be entirely on the backs of our citizens and our police in this case, which is where we started this discussion. Yeah, and we've sort of moved to the intersection of police and homelessness, but I want, do want to back up to police sure. for just a second. So there are some very specific proposals being put out right now regarding, um, specifically in Santa Monica, defunding the police, but the term defund the police is being discussed much more broadly. Yes. You know, there's been discussions here about do we need the Bearcat, which is the, um, people describe it as a tank. Mm. It's not, but it's the big armored, scary vehicle. Right. Um, do we need certain kinds of weapons? Do we need so many officers? Um, there's, you know, we're actively engaged in that discussion. Sure. Where do you stand on some of those issues? Do you think the police need that level of equipment? Or do you think those, those budget resources should be redeployed somewhere else, more towards the social workers or something as you suggest. Well, obviously, uh, the software is more important than the hardware, meaning the personnel is more important than whatever tank you have or whatever you know kind of tear gas you're using or whatever it is. I'm pretty sure we don't need a tank. I, I, that's sort of beyond my realm of, of basically comprehension. Uh, but we definitely need something like tear gas. Tear gas is a useful device when a crowd gets out of control. You might have to use a tear gas. It's more benign than shooting into the crowd or shooting in the air. So, um, like I said, we can get into the weeds about what they should have, what they shouldn't have in terms of hardware. Uh, but the real issue is the people, the quality of the people. And like I say, my feeling is the quality of the people is excellent on the ground. The question is, what's happening in leadership? Where, where, where are they going? And when you say leadership, are you talking about the police department's leadership structure or about city council? Everything be from from basically the the last two people before you get to the police chief on up to the city manager on up to the city council. I mean, they're they're the ones who should be driving the ship. You know, they're the ones who the the police are you know very very well equipped and trained 
to follow orders. They're not going to go against their leadership. So the leadership is the key. And, uh, and again, if the leadership is being told prioritize t- tourists and tourist activity, they will deploy where the tourists are, and they won't deploy where the citizens are experiencing crime. You know, the funny thing is that even though we're a w- very wealthy city, it's really bizarre that we're having these criminality problems because, you know, people are slowly on the wealthy side are being pushed to various forms of private police forces, which eventually get you into vigilantism and all that. And the people on the poverty side eventually give up, and they just start putting bars on their windows and barbed wire on their fences and their backyards. And that's not the city we want to be. We don't, we don't want to have a city that's basically armored. We want a city that feels open. But if we're going to feel open visually, we should have a reputation as being, yeah, we're open, but... No one mess with, messes with us. That's what I'm trying to get out there. That's the message I want to send out. That we're not a soft target, basically. Even though we might look soft, we're not really a soft target. And, and to the specifics of the, the May 31st, because as I said, they're different, right? Like, right. The response to May 31st was very particular. Yes. Like, I don't know off the top of my head. I can't remember another time where tear gas was deployed here. I, I had never heard of it being deployed. I had never seen it being deployed, mm-hmm. right? We wouldn't even be discussing tear gas if it wasn't for that one one day, right? 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 Like, right? It's a, it's not. It's part of law enforcement, but it, to me, it's such a big and sure. standout spike. Like, right? But do you think the police department? How do you rate the job they did that day? Well, like I say, I think they did a terrible job. They protected the promenade and the pier and let the city burn. So. They did a terrible job. They didn't call up the reserves. They didn't bring in the National Guard soon enough. There were a number of things they could have done. They could have blocked off the freeway. These are things that other cities have done under similar circumstances. Like we didn't know it wasn't coming. We saw what happened in Beverly Hills the night before. So they did a terrible job. You know, and again, I don't blame the individual. Right. You're not saying individual officers did what they were told to do. They did what they could. You're criticizing the strategic plan that was put in place. No. Exactly. I'm criticizing the preparation. I'm criticizing the response time. I'm criticizing, you know, the word that was sent out. You know, what, what, you know, not calling up everybody when we knew it was headed in our direction. Come on, guys. That's just like basic stuff. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about crime. We started to address homelessness a little bit. Um, I've heard you voice the, the plan for homelessness, and I'm using broad strokes here, would be in your mind, more outreach, more services, but a partnership with uh, regional entities to uh, find housing. Right. And you think the best location for that is, at least as a starting point, uh, the VA. Yeah, for a third of the population that is vets of various various kinds, that would be a good destination for them. And the other, so, and we can go back to homelessness, but I think you've sort of summarized your point on that, uh, broadly speaking. So the next thing you had talked about on your list was finances. Yes. And you referenced the city budget being in the same place it was seven years ago. Yes. Um, can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, so we're, I, I'm going to pick a number. It's fluctuating, obviously. I'm going to say $600 million. Sure, rough number. Yeah, right. And uh, when you look at what was the uh, the pension overhang, meaning the unfunded portion of our pension liabilities, it was about 450000 at that time, 2013. And, and here's the thing about this. This is an important topic, and I know from years of research that the term 
unfunded pension liability is like a light switch. You see the light go out behind people's eyes mm-hmm. when you say this term. Yeah. So can you explain to people sure. why that is a critically important topic? Okay. Well, it's very simple. You know, the city puts aside money for its civil servants. When they retire, they all get pensions and medical benefits from that retirement. And the city is always investing money uh, to provide for that for when they're no longer working for the city. So when they invest that money, they invest it in an organization called CalPERS, and that organization turns around and invests it in the stock market and insurance, and they basically have to generate the funds needed for when that person retires. Okay, So the money will be there when the city manager retires or when the policeman retires. That money has to be there, right? And... Uh, so what happens is that all along the way, there's always the people always looking, well, how are the numbers going? How's our retirement rate? What's the number of people who have died off, the number of people who have signed up for the program? That's always being monitored. And when you compare the money that's in the bank, meaning the money that's in available in CalPERS, the organization that's managing our fund, and the possible draws, meaning the, the actuarial probability that that money will be drawn upon and exhausted, right now we have about three quarters of the money we need in that account, and we have about a quarter of the money is missing. The money's simply not there. And that's about $450 million at the last time it was measured, which was 2018. It's the last time we had real numbers. Okay? So that missing amount, where does that come from? Well, if CalPERS messes up, screws up, doesn't invest things in the right way, or gets stock market tanks, whatever right, the economy goes down. Yeah, whatever whatever it is, that number can really balloon up. So for instance, right now, uh, CalPERS is supposed to be trying to get us a seven and an eighth return on our investment. The money we invest in CalPERS, we're supposed to get seven and a half, seven and eighth per year. But if they only get six and an eighth, then that means our, our, let's say, our unfunded liability, that $450 million, balloons up to, I'll choose a number, $700 million. Again, it fluctuates, but it's going to be on that scale. So even a small drop in the return on CalPERS has huge impacts on the obligations that we have. So what we're really saying is that the debt that the city has, the $450 million, may balloon up to about $600, $700, which is going to be the the amount of money for the annual operating budget of the city. So essentially the city could do everything it can, but it would have to spend all of its money that it gained on just the pension fund if we had to zero it out. And I'm not saying we have to zero it out instantly. Right, but that's the the, the apocalyptic end of the worst case scenario would be the that worst, the, the worst, the all city services would be subsumed or consumed yes. and that the city would have to make right. huge payoffs to the CalPERS agency. Right. Right. Um, and it could it could essentially end city services for residents, right? Like that's obviously the worst case, but yeah, even it's, in it's, a it's less just, worst case, you, you could see a situation where services would be cut to pay for the exactly, the pension. Exactly, liability. exactly. So at a certain point, you go down a slippery slope where you cut services, the city becomes less attractive. There's less tourists, then you have to cut services more because there's less hotel tax, and it's a downward spiral. Eventually, you get down to Vallejo or Stockton, where you know. It, it, they they have one policeman and it's 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 you know it's not a functioning it's a failed city like you can have a failed state, you know it's like uh, so the point I'm making is that uh, we've binged a lot you know that two two point four million dollar bathroom in Clover Park did we need that question mark did we need to spend millions of dollars fighting district elections uh, on the legal level these are all questions that you know a prudent city would have avoided these unnecessary expenses and been much more careful seeing 
you know, it wasn't like the city wasn't trying. I believe it was like two, three years ago they put in like thirty, forty million dollars to try yeah. to try to. There was a couple of big lump sum. Exactly, and that was great. That was moving, doing exactly what they should be doing. But remember, we were in the same place seven years ago. To start doing it three years ago or two years ago, it's a little late. You see where I'm going with this? It's not. This is not a good outcome, and, and then to act surprised that we have this problem, you know, uh, you know, what were you thinking? Who, who was who was minding the store? Gotcha. And so that's a um, a long term problem, right? Exactly. So some of the things we've talked about are immediate, front mm-hmm. of mind, like homelessness is something right. you see every day. Right. Unfunded pension liability, most people don't even think about, but it's it's a big picture strategic problem behind the scenes. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, one quick housekeeping thing. Did you, if you just got closer to your microphone, you might want to get yeah. a little bit further sure. away. <laughs> you it. just got a no. lot louder. No, no. Sorry <laughs> so, about that. No, no uh, worries. I just, it's, people will suddenly think you're shouting at them. Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you a, another direction to take this conversation, if you don't mind. You know, I've been always pushing on the Landmarks Commission and, you know, I mean, on the Planning Commission, but also on the Landmarks Commission uh, with the idea that, you know, we really have a serious sustainability problem in our city. And not because our city doesn't do a lot. Our city, in fact, is very progressive in that sense. But we haven't really faced the really big issues that we should face as a city because these, these big issues are basically game changers. They change the rules of our game. And no one wants to change the rules because they think up to now that they're winning. But I'm going to use a different analogy, and I think where we are. Imagine you and your friends are driving in a car at 60 miles an hour. You're driving down a road, and let's say for whatever reason the road is straight. And it's a foggy day. It's complete. You can't see more than 20 feet in front of you. And you're just blasting along happily. And someone tells you, you know, there's a wall somewhere up ahead in the fog. You don't know where it is. Okay? And so, you know, there's two choices. Be either... either it could be like just six feet in front of you and you're, it's already too late. Or it could be 10 miles away and you're going to run out of gas before you get there, so who cares? But you don't know where that wall is. So what should you do? And where that wall is in our city, the failure paths, there are many. One of the first failure paths would be shortage of water. We're already starting to see some of that in some places. Another big failure path is shortage of power. We're already seeing brownouts. Another failure path is a shortage of mobility capacity, whether they are streets, whether they are bike paths, whether whatever they are. We're, we're starting to run out of things. We're running out of money. We're running out of all these other essentials for living, right? So most people, oh, when you start running out of things, you start using less of them. You start to economize. And what does economizing look like for a city like ours? Well. You stop knocking down buildings, digging a hole for two years, and putting up some huge object and then renting it out to a very high rate to whoever wants to run a business or rent there, live there. You start adaptively reusing all this empty square footage of offices and retail for housing to restore a housing job and balance. We have we have more jobs in housing. So if you do that, you kill two birds with one stone. First, you don't waste a lot of materials and energy and resources building stuff because adaptive reuse and converting things is always a lot cheaper in terms of materials. It's very labor-intensive, but it's cheaper in terms of materials and time. 
And the second thing, by restoring the job housing imbalance, every job you subtract by converting an office into a house is one more job that people might not have to commute to from somewhere else. So you're solving two birds with one stone, energy, time, and traffic. You know. So what I'm saying, here's a perfectly good path. Our planning codes are not designed for that. They're not pointed in that direction. I'll give you another direction. If you want to be a truly net zero city, which every city in the world should be, and we as a state have agreed that by 2045, we are going to be a net zero state, meaning we're going to generate all the power we need in our state from regenerative sources, whatever they might be. They could be wood, they could be solar, they could be wind, they could be geothermal. It doesn't matter what they are, as long as they're not fossil fuels, right? So we have a big commitment to that as a state, but as a city, we need to start moving down that road. Well, why aren't we moving down that road? Well, because... If you want to make a net zero building in today's technology, you can't make it higher than three stories. You just can't generate enough power when the building gets over three stories. Now, technology is going to improve. Maybe we can go to four stories. So, but has our city planning code decided to, you know, support that idea of a really green city? No. In fact, we are in this car that's traveling down 100 miles an hour. The city is actually stepping on the accelerator. They are stepping up and they're saying, oh, well, we got to build 9,000 units when there's no real demand for 9,000 units. Just the population increase will be about 1,100 units. But we got to provide 9,000. The 9,000 number came from um, uh, the SCAG. acronym is GUESS. Yeah, SCAG. The, the, the regional agency right, right. Right, said you need to build those units. Sure. And the, and the city council, though, has bought into it, you know? You'll see uh, Glean Davis saying things like, oh, I'm not so closed-minded to think that we shouldn't consider building fourplexes on R1 lots. You know, she'll say things like that. They'll say things like, well, we, ha we, we have to sacrifice our R1 lots and R1 residents. You're not allowed to have a single-family home anymore in Santa Monica because you're not going to be, you're going to be surrounded by big-ass buildings on all three sides of you. So you can have that home, but you're not going to have the, the single-family experience. Now, the single-family experience is not sacred, believe me. I'm all for accessory dwelling units. I think they're a great step. But it's a slippery slope, basically. But all of these directions should be aimed at sustainability. And by sustainability, I mean, you know, the city's been around for 145 years. We want it to be around for another 145 years. But we know, certainly before 2100, we will have no beach. So where will we be as a city? These questions are sustainability questions. And they intersect with everything. They intersect with, you name it, eventually it comes down to sustainability. We're, we're acting as if we're, uns, you know, we can sustain this way of being forever. Well, we, you know, that's why I start out by saying, you know, we're living in a Blade Runner world. Well, how did you think that brick wall ahead of our 100 mile an hour car is going to look? Well, you're not going to see it immediately. You're going to see the outlines of it. And we're seeing the outlines, homelessness, crime, you know, inexpensive houses for many, very few affordable houses for the other many. And, you know, and we think we're exempt. We act like, oh, the, you know, the water is just going to keep coming out of the aquifer and feed all this new development. Well, it isn't. It's going to, as soon as there's a drought, we're going to use up all our water, the water we can pump. Then we're going to say, well, can Utah give us some water? You know, we're connecting the Colorado River. Well, yeah, actually, they can give us water if they had some, and they can give us water as long as we don't have a big earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. So, again, I'm not saying we haven't made progress. What I'm saying is, we need to step it up, and by stepping it up, I mean we need to slow down that car, okay? We need to take our foot off the accelerator. And I'll use the image 
the city doesn't have a lead foot on that accelerator. They have a lead foot on our necks and our children's necks and our grandchildren's necks because they're going to live in the mess that we created. And the mess is not pretty, and no one wants to live in a city where they don't feel at home. And now many of our residents don't recognize the city they're living in. They don't feel at home here. They think it's been, it's been somehow turned into something else. So, again, this is not a, a retro argument. This is not make Santa Monica great again because Santa Monica had problems in the past. I'm saying let's make sure there's a Santa Monica around 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now. Let's really look ahead. What might you do to do that? Well, the first thing you would do, among many first things, I mean, just one of the first few things, is you would start changing our canopy, our tree canopy. That's going to keep our city temperatures somewhat manageable uh, and start planting the trees that can take the heat. In other words, we're going, to look, we're going to look more like San Diego, let's say. The climate of San Diego is really... Basically, what's happening is global warming is moving up the coast at 12 and a half miles a, a year. So... You know, in 10 years, we're going to look like San Diego. Now, San Diego's going to look like Ensenada. You know, that, that's, you know, and again, it's not linear, but you see where this is going. I've never heard the city council talk about this. No one has really addressed, well, how do we jack up the pier when the time comes? We're going to build a bridge to the pier. Is that bridge going to be flexible enough to be jacked up when the time comes to raise the pier? Um, and none of, no one wants to talk about this because it all, it's, first of all, it's scary stuff. And second of all, no one thinks there's any money for this. And then, you know, we make all these short-term decisions that eventually turn around and start to kill us. And that's what's happening. Um, so I'll give you another example. This is simple, simple stuff. We have a city that kills four people a year on, by traffic, by cars primarily, hitting bicyclists, pedestrians, and car accidents. That number has not changed. It's just a constant. There it is. We have a Vision Zero program. Try to reduce that. doesn't work. But... All those cars we have driving in our city, they kill another nine needless deaths through air pollution, okay? Now, we don't know if those nine actually live in Santa Monica or they live in Venice, but our share of the, let's call them excessive deaths, our share of the excessive deaths from air pollution, which is primarily cars, is about nine people. So, more people die from the exhaust pipe than from the car itself. So what's our solution? Well, our solution should be to very rapidly shift over as much as possible to electric cars because electric cars can be powered by regenerative sources. Well, what could we do as a city? Well, we can't go out and buy an electric car for everybody. We could do some, you know, let's say, for lack of better words, some subsidies to people who own all electric cars. We could also, for instance, give them a year or three or five of a free parking pass, you know, that you hang it in your window and you can park anywhere you want and don't have to pay parking meters or parking lots. So there's a lot of things we could do to incentivize the electric car. I'm not the friend of the car, but the car is going to be with us for a long time. And our city, again, should be moving faster. We're just, we're just poking along. We love to be a green city, but when it comes time to actually becoming one, we're having a hard time. And, and right now, it's really a hard time because we're colliding with the budget crunch and all those other things. So, so was the city wrong to eliminate the Office of Sustainability? Absolutely. That was, that was a clear sign that they did not value sustainability, which is, you know, they were so busy putting out the brush fire, they didn't realize that global warming is the big brush fire, and they don't even have a single person right now that can talk on this level and advise the city and the city council. And for re- for readers or readers, <laughs> use of the paper, for listeners who don't know, 
pre-COVID, we had an Office of Sustainability, right, which yes. was a city department dedicated to um, environmental policies. They in- did lots of things. They weren't a planning division, no. but they did a lot of policy work. They were doing a lot of information activities. They were uh, doing their best to push things forward. Yes. They were wholesale eliminated when the uh, COVID blew a crater in the city budget. Right. Their entire department sure. was, was eliminated. Right. And, and, and by the way, we also eliminated the uh, uh, homeless uh, liaison or whatever the job title yeah, was. Yeah, the, the word that comes to my mind is czar, but I know yeah, that it's not politically not, not correct. Not the appropriate czar, but, but she was the over, the um, homeless. I can't remember the title now. Yeah, Alyssa Ordunia was her name. She we had a person yeah. whose job it was to, was keep, to oversee homeless. Keep track of it. Keep all all the programs kind of lined up correctly. Yep. Look for fat. Look for opportunities primarily. Uh, and just someone, it, it's sort of like someone has to be minding that part of the equation, right? Now, I'm not saying sustainability is everything, but eventually will become everything. But that's, you know, down the road. But it's already, you know, you look around you and you say, why are we breathing all this air that's full of soot? Well, <laughs> welcome to the real world. We're, we're, we're in, in our, our state is burning and there's a reason it's burning. It's not that, you know, we, uh, we somehow lit the match. No, we've been driving cars, which have been spewing pollution, which has been using up and increasing the temperature of the world, and blah, 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 you know, and, and we're all connected. So that's the good news, by the way, that even a small step in a certain direction, because everything is connected, will pull things in the right direction, pull things in the right direction. That's where I'm trying to go. Can we go in the right direction for a change? So we're running out of time here, but there, there are a couple things just related to what you said that are related to things that are happening right now, right? Yes. So uh, Big Blue Bus, for example, ridership is plummeting, yep. right? They're hemorrhaging riders. I don't want to say they're hemorrhaging money, but it's certainly not no. good. No, no, they're in trouble. Um, and so this is an – what would you do about that? Like you've talked about traffic and sustainability. Like buses are right there at this intersection. Yeah. Like how – what would you do for them? How do you propose to try and – Pull, pull that service back. Well, the, the buses are essential. And if, you know, right now we're in this funny period where people don't want to ride buses because, for one thing, there's very little, very few rides. and you know, they're coming with large intervals. And then, second of all, nobody ever feels safe given the COVID situation. But that's a temporary situation. Right. Some point a year out from now, we will have a vaccine. And maybe a year after that. We're going to be, you know, reasonably secure in riding public transit, whether it's airplanes, buses, or, or metro trains. You know, people will feel comfortable. I think, I hope, in in using yeah. mass transit. I'll say we have uh, employees that take the train. Train's yeah. still busy. Not yeah. not shoulder to shoulder busy like it right. was uh, on a break, but yeah. surprisingly, still very busy. Sure, sure. And, you know, and the main thing with the train, of course, is to make it feel safe. A lot of people don't feel safe on the train. But, but let's, say we, let's say we can hold our breath for a year or a year or two and subsidize the bus system to get us over the hump, to get us into that area where we can start actually making money again with the buses. And, uh, you know, and I, I think the buses have to be part of our solution. And Do you think there is a way to make money with the buses? No, I think most most cities that have really good bus systems end up subsidizing their bus system. It's just the nature of the beast. There seems to be. I think they all do. We we actually looked at this the other day, and you know, there's not a there's not a. You think of the greatest bus systems around; they're all subsidized. Yeah, some actually surprisingly heavily. Right, right, and and I think that's the norm. And you could use, say, the bus should be something that is basically a great benefit for everybody, and so the costs of that should be spread over everybody. 
Uh, one of the things that could be done in that line is to start thinking about some way of, as taxes, here's a problem we're having, and you can see where this is going immediately. What we've been doing as a city, we keep piling on taxes, school bonds, college bonds, all these things, we keep piling on taxes. These are big taxes. They generate a lot of money over a period of time, but, but they are expensive, and they slowly test people's patience, and now we're going to do the, you know, we might do the business, the split-roll taxing, which another thing is going to start to really hurt small businesses. Uh, you're talking about, when you say, are you talking about the um, property tax revisions, or yes. are you talking about the the, the sale tax that the city's proposing. The, the sales tax thing is is trivial in my I shouldn't say sales tax. Yeah, the the it's tax when you tax. sell a piece of property. Trans, yeah. Transfer tax, yeah. Yes. I think that's actually a good tax, if I can use that word, a good tax in this sense that, you know, the the value added of a property between it when it was bought and when it's sold, it has to do sometimes how the owner has managed the property, maintained the property, but mostly it has to do with what's happening in the larger economy and what's happening in your city. Has your city done a good job? That property is more desirable than the same property, let's say, in Covina or the same property in Hawthorne, right? So, in a sense, the owner who will benefit from the increase in the sales cost, the profit from the sale, did not really create all that profit themselves. And so I think it's fair that, particularly for the very upper-end projects and products, that they share some of that gain in value with the rest of the city that's done a good job in increasing the value. Now, obviously, the opposite is true. If the property has dropped in value, that means something went wrong, and the person should not have to pay for something that went wrong. But if something went right, particularly for decades, then some of that wealth gain should be shared. So the property transfer tax, I think, is a good thing, particularly because I think it has the right thresholds to keep the people who have modest gains from modest properties getting that, all of that gain, but people who have really big properties have to share more of it. So it's it's... It's a fair tax, a good fair tax. And again, it's extracted at the end of the ownership. So, um, But the split roll tax, which is really, let's call it a necessary correction to what Prop 13 did, which was sort of put the whole city structure and state structure eventually on a very, very lean diet uh, so that, you know, basically now we went from being like, you know, number two in schools to like whatever we are, number 40, 45, you know, that kind of thing. As a consequence of Prop 13, we just don't have the money. So this is a way of recapturing some of the money. The question is, can it insulate, buffer the people who have businesses, that is, who have triple net leases, where those extra costs will just be passed on directly to the, the business tenants, the people who are renting that property. That's the part that I'm unclear of, and I just have to have more information to see what and that really looks for, like. For folks, again, we have to always add these the, the asterisks to explain what we're talking about. Yes, <laughs> this is please. a state proposition that would alter the way property taxes are collected. And California, that's been very much like the third rail, right? Property right. tax has been right. set. So if you, listener, don't fully understand this, you should go and take take a look at the ballot propositions there's a state ballot proposition that is going to change the way property tax is collected specifically on commercial property, commercial and agricultural. Yeah. Well, let me, let me add an idea here that I think is important. You know, we keep piling on more and more taxes on our businesses and on our residents, right? And we keep piling them on willy-nilly. Um, 
and again, everybody wants school bonds. Everyone thinks they're a great idea. We have good schools. That's as it should be. But what's happening is we're piling on the taxes faster than we're paying off the bonds, meaning we should be piling on taxes today because, you know, a year ago, we paid off a whole bond. So there's a little bit more money coming to the homeowner. But we're going the other way. Even though bonds are being paid off, we're adding new bonds faster than the older ones are being paid off. So that's the runaway, give me more money, not doing, you know, more with less, but doing you know, less with more, basically, more of our money. And so that's the problem that I would like to see addressed, that we not pass or advocate for or push for bonds before we've retired the, the ones. In other words, don't go over the number. If people are comfortable paying, I'll choose a number, $1,000 a month for bond tax, $1,000 a year, then we shouldn't go over that. In other words, we should only add additional bonds for projects, very worthy projects, you know, water, pier, Whatever it is, what, you know, a new park in the, in the airport, all those things are going to require bonds, but we shouldn't be going over the current burden that we've imposed upon our residents. So, um, you know, that's sort of a, you know, before, I guess, here's the way of looking at it. Our city had really runaway spending. We make more money per capita. We've got, you know, whatever it is, $6,500 income per capita. LA City's got $2,800 or half of us, something like that. So we don't have an income problem. We have actually a spending problem. We spend too much money. It's not like we're not getting money. We spend too much money as a city. And that's a whole other discussion we could have some other time. But most people don't think that. Most people think, oh, the city's broke. Well, actually, no, the city's not broke. The city's got a lot of money, but it's cooked up a lot of obligations. And that's the problem. It's the obligations. It's not the collection of taxes and fees and you know, parking income, all that stuff a city gets. It's the fact that we spend so much. Gotcha. And we should also say that there's, I mean, this is a very complicated topic as well, right? Because there there's a pre-COVID and a yes, post-COVID exactly. <laughs> calculation. And there's nobody and, who knows what the post-COVID really is going to look like. How, you see, yeah, like, how fast is it going to There's pre-COVID, there's COVID now, and then right. there's post-COVID, right? right? And we don't know what post-COVID looks like. We mm-hmm. just, just don't know. But everything, there's a distinct difference between where the city finances were a year ago yep. and where they are now. Right. But what I'm saying is that we were acting like the party was never going to end. And it's only two years ago we started looking at our pension liability. Uh, now we, now it's staring us in the face. And, you know, if the stock market has a hiccup, well, you know, <laughs> it's a big hiccup for us, you know. Um, so, anyway... First of all, I appreciate you stopping and explaining everything. I think it's very valuable to help people understand even the words we use, even what we're talking about. Because a lot of people, first of all, don't know. They just haven't heard these thoughts or these words. And the other thing is that a lot of people, it's not that they're cynical, but they don't quite understand how these decisions today affect their daily lives. And in in my particular case, how an election today is going to affect their life for another four years. So that, I think, is a very valuable service that you're performing. And I'm glad you're doing these interviews, and I hope you're able to do them in a way that you are able to represent people's whole point of view in your your reporting or in your recordings or in your podcasts. Because this is, again a broad discussion of getting a whole bunch of people to feel like they have, first of all, knowledge of their city 
and therefore have a stake in their city. What now is happening, a lot of people are disconnected from their city. And, and people of all the different political persuasions, they don't feel the city is listening to them. And, you know, the city will try to be transparent, but there's a lot of stuff that I feel is, is not really transparent. And I've already referred to some of the things, you know, when everybody's saying, oh, there's no crime in Santa Monica. Well, you know, those are five incumbents saying that. And I, you know, it flies in the face of everyone's experience. So, um, and, you know, and I also like to speak a little bit to a deep-seated fear that people have. You know, the fear is obviously for their safety. You know, people don't feel safe. There's all kinds of home invasions. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But there are also a more primal fear is that what if this whole thing is a house of cards? What if this is just the beginning of a big-ass end of the Roman Empire kind of collapse? And what would it look like? Well, it'll just look like, you know, it's getting frayed around the edges. It won't all happen one afternoon where, you know, we declare the city over. Everyone's on their own. But this is what it looks like. It starts getting really, really rocky. It starts getting very inconsistent. Some indicators are going up. Some indicators are going down. But overall, the whole thing is getting a little creaky. And, little, and so when your ship is taking on water, you don't say, go faster. You start, instead of pushing the ship, you start pumping out the water. And that's where we are. The, the city has, as a policy right now, is starting this whole new process to figure out where they're going to put 9,000 units in our city. And I think that that's absolutely irresponsible, verging on the criminal because we don't need 9,000 units, we can't make the 9,000 unit, we can't support the 9,000 unit, and virtually none of those units are going to be affordable for a variety of reasons. So we're being set off on these fool's errands, and the city has not done anything to say, well, wait, can we stop? Can we just slow down the car before we hit that brick wall? Can we slow it down enough to understand possibly how far the brick wall is? Maybe someone should walk on up ahead and see what's going on. You know, that's, that's where I'm going with this, that we've been, we've been remiss. The city has been remiss. Uh, and particularly because we're not the only city that has this problem. But our city has refused to take on Sacramento and all their crazy notions about what we should build and not build. And basically, we've given up local control. Citizens are not involved in that. They had no control. They have no say whether it's 9,000 or 2,000 or 100 units that we should build over the next years. But the citizens need to have buy-in, those big decisions that affect their lives. We don't have that today. And so the city council is a, is a logical place, logical forum for that discussion. Our city has avoided that discussion and said, well, you know, it's, we got to build 9,000 units. Just take my word for it. And I think there's a lot of disbelief out there that, what? You just, same old game plan, more and more and more? In a shrinking world, in an impoverished world, you just want to do more? Well, yeah, but maybe there's another way. And that's what I'm offering. I'm offering an alternative, a different way of looking at the problem. Gotcha. All right, so we're, we're way over time at this point. <laughs> so usually I've been, giving, I've been giving everyone a chance to make a closing statement. Uh, do you have a, a closing statement you want to make in the last couple minutes? Yes. Your city doesn't have to be this way. It can be much better. We just need a different city council. We need a city council that really listens to the residents and moves in their best interest, in the forward-looking, sustainable best interest. And I'm that person. Thanks for listening to the Santa Monica Politics Podcast, powered by the Santa Monica Daily Press. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the Santa Monica Politics Podcast is provided by The Brig Band. Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that's been playing 
on the West Side since 2002. Their regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. If you want to find out where they're playing next, go to thebrigband.com.